0: On Monday, July 13, Blue Frontier and the Center for the Blue Economy released the Ocean Climate Action Plan. This final report is the result of 16 months of work by over 800 people, including a diverse range of ocean and coastal stakeholders. On today's Rising Tide, I'm talking with two of my key colleagues in this ongoing effort to create a Blue New Deal for the United States and our Blue Marble Planet today I'm talking with uh, Jason scores director of the Center for the blue economy at Middlebury Institute for International studies in Monterey and blue frontiers partner in the ocean climate action plan and also Charlie peebler who's the 16 year old founder of heirs to our ocean and activist youth group she specializes in corals and deep seas and uh, and derelict fishing gear and is also a leader of our uh, youth advisory council for the Ocean Climate Action Plan, AKA Blue New Deal. Maybe we can just start with uh, Jason, with uh, kind of what inspired us to start rolling this out 16 months ago with an article we did in Manga Bay, which is an online conservation science outlet. But uh, I, I think for me and probably you too, it was Alexandra Casio cortez and Senator Ed Markey put out the Green New Deal. Uh, which looked great, but.
1: Yeah, right. But as as many people in the ocean world know, it, it was very lacking in ocean focus. In fact, it barely mentioned the oceans at all. And so that was the impetus for you and I, David, to kind of try to rustle together this national coalition to make sure that ocean climate policy was front and center when when climate policy was, you know, gonna rise up in the ranks of priorities and, and hit the US Congress. And so that's what we've been busy doing. And uh, we're really happy with the report. Uh, Charlie contributed a lot to and her colleagues and uh, and many others around the country.
0: Yeah, I think, um, and again, there was more connection, I believe, with youth at that time than say the formal ocean community and network of ocean conservation groups. but. Youth was recognized in climate threat early. There was the student strikes of 2019. And as a ocean-oriented youth group, heirs to the Ocean was doing some of that work as well.
2: Yeah, we were. Uh, We definitely attended a lot of the climate strikes and it was really incredible to see youth uh, come together for this global movement. And I'm actually really happy to see the involvement in youth in OCAP as well. Um, It's super great that we're getting our voice out for the futures
0: the physical nature of the oceans literally being changed in our lifetimes by climate uh, in terms of its, its circulation, its chemistry, its temperature, and its color. So, um, you know, what's frustrating to me is we know a lot of the solutions. It's creating the political will to enact them. But, but even, Jason, even with solutions, though, we sort of know them, but it takes people in the fields, in the in the specific sectors of of ocean activity and and blue economy, to really start drilling down and what those solutions might be.
1: Yeah, so let me just say two points on that. First, I just I want to give a you know another shout out to the youth in this, you know, both you know the heirs and other youth activist groups because I really think this is a historical moment where the adults are following the youth and not the other way around and. I, you know, I've been in this movement for climate change for 25 plus years, and the, the rapid acceleration of things that were unheard of, you know, you know, decarbonized by 2050, was not ever mentioned in the Obama administration. It was unheard of even five years ago. And now that's the language, that's the baseline. And I really think it's because of the youth activists putting it front and center not being cowed by what's politically salient or what compromises need to be made with industry, but saying this is what needs to be done, and uh, you know, so it's an honor to kind of be to help do the policy work, to help fill in those blanks and make it a reality. And so, to, to your question, you know, let's—it's it's worth taking a moment to say the Democrats came out with their big report solving the climate crisis a little over a week ago which is an outstanding report. I think all Democrats, all Americans should be proud of it because it's a really serious attempt to unify all the, the key pieces, environmental justice, industry, labor rights, and it has a big ocean component. They, they took their cues, they got the criticism, um, and it has a big ocean component. But there's a number of pieces that are missing that I think OCAP will help fill in. Because we probably did the the deepest dive, so to speak, in the real policy details. And I think I see our work as really complementary to the larger democratic
0: uh, efforts. We sort of had four areas that we broke it down to coastal infrastructure and financing, um, offshore renewable energy, um, ports, shipping, and the maritime sector, and then um, fishing, aquaculture, marine uh, conservation, diversity. I mean, I go back to how did change happen, the big environmental keystone laws of the 1970s, and you look at something like the Clean Air Act, and it was this coalition of the steel workers and the public health community and the environmentalists, and getting these unique coalitions, you know, when it's money versus people. You have to have, like, broad coalitions of people to, to get that balance over. And I think we're we're beginning to do that on, on this blue coalition around this Blue New Deal. Charlie, maybe you want to speak about your your coalition, your
1: your crew?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so when we first were able to speak at the October event for the Ocean Climate Action Plan at Middlebury Institute in Monterey, uh, I was really motivated because there was this group of just like 60 to 70 people who were basically hanging on to our every word. Um, I and another heir, Aaliyah, were able to speak. And it felt incredible to know that there was the intergenerational relationship uh, like that in this plan. And I think it's definitely to the point you were bringing up, uh, David, earlier, about how uh, youth are seen as something for the future and not as something for the present. I think that's definitely something that wasn't realized until up until recently, really, um, is that youth should be fighting for our futures now and not in the future. Um, And that's what I like about OCAP so much is how intergenerational it is, because oftentimes youth aren't seen as credible. um, And it's incredible to see that we can bring this legislative piece and this uh, youth passion piece and put it together to create OCAP
0: yeah and and also i mean that was a great uh event back in the days when people met face to face and open spaces and you know and and delicious you know mexican vegan uh tacos and uh and and you know people who've come from street activism meeting like the uh state controller uh controller ye who actually has like 700 billion in pension funds under her control and talked about using that leverage to get the financial sector to move away from fossil fuels and invest in renewables. And so when we talk about an offshore wind industry or you know investing in, in uh, restoring coastal habitats, um, we're talking with people who actually have the resources or can mobilize the resources to shift capital, to shift investment in those directions, and and that's sort of the specialty, I guess, of the Center for the Blue Economy. Uh, if you want to talk a little about funding and investing in in a healthy ocean.
1: Sure, sure. First, Charlie, you're a good you're a good poster child for uh, for reducing the voting age to sixteen. So then, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's yeah. We should get that one on the ballot. Um, but uh, yeah, so. You know, in terms of two things on the financial side, one that's, you know, an international component of the Ocean Climate Action Plan. So we have a recommendation in there that the U.S. should sign on to kind of the new blue economy financing principles. And these have been uh, the World Bank, IMF and the EU have been really at at the forefront of this. But these are some really nice, simple, clear principles to help funnel investment into things that are truly sustainable and you know, climate-friendly development, uh, because for too long finance has just gone wherever the money's the best or wherever you know the, the first developers that come knocking. And so these principles will help kind of funnel finance in the right directions. The next point is a little counterintuitive, which is that, and this kind of comes back to my kind of critique of the Democrats' plan, is that a lot of the the, the blockages right now, a lot of the bottlenecks in the blue economy in the United States are not primarily economic. They're more informational, they're more regulatory, they're more permitting. So right now, for example, offshore wind is economic in almost everywhere in the country. What's stopping offshore wind is not a lack of tax credits; it's the fact that they can't get the, the federal leases from the government in a quick fashion. They can't make plans. They don't know where they're allowed to expand, where they're about to go. They don't see a plan for a national grid and for transmission cables. So, you know, tax credits are great. Give give offshore wind tax credits. But that's actually not going to be the thing that's going to scale offshore wind. And so interestingly, as an economics think tank, we actually kind of found a lot of things that aren't directly related to money. That are really the bottlenecks here, and I think that's one of the surprising aspects that, that really comes across in the OCAP report.
0: And and interestingly, also another example being, uh, you know, living shorelines, the the green infrastructure in our case, blue infrastructure, restoring uh, coastal marshes and and salt marshes and wetlands and dunes and 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 again, this is an example where it's already been shown to be more cost effective. And so the issue really isn't the financing, the issue is the education. People are used to rock walls and revetments. They're used to uh, hard gray infrastructure. And so one of our suggestions that isn't in the congressional plan, but should be, is um, you know take the Army Corps of Engineers and begin building or supporting model living shoreline projects across the nation. And, and and set up a national database that that developers and property owners and others can look at to see um, what works, because what works is is fantastic. I believe you said triple bottom line, a win-win-win. It's good for the environment. It's aesthetically way more pleasing than uh, hard structures. And, uh, and it's more cost effective. They've here in San Francisco Bay, they found that uh, it would cost three times as much to keep San Francisco airport from being inundated by sea rise. Um, If you put in walls, then if you extended uh, natural salt marshes and eelgrass beds around it that are already there and they just need to be um, expanded.
2: I think that's a fantastic point, especially because there's not one solution. Uh, It's not just a man-made solution or an eco-oriented solution. We need both really. Um, There's a lot of debate in the conservation community, at what about what we should be doing to fight these crises. But in reality, all of it is pretty much a viable solution. We need to be working towards multiple areas of focus uh, to solve these issues. And that's something that Airstore Oceans is trying to push through, is showing that youth can be involved in legislative work, in restoration work, in education work like all of these different branches need to be tied together at some point because just like our Earth's ecosystems it really is all interconnected
0: you know they always try to say well you know it's like environment versus jobs and the reality when you live someplace like california is with great environmental standards come great jobs so offshore i've, I've been on a. Uh, BP deep drilling platforms I've been on, uh, out with the Roughnecks and the Roustabouts on offshore drilling platforms. And it kind of feels like I'm on a whaling ship in the 1850s. You know, this is a great part of our maritime history, but, but it's time to leave, it's time to leave the historic stage. And the great thing with offshore wind is uh, all these guys on the drilling platform, all these guys on the well deck, the Roughnecks, the Roustabouts, they have the skills that are really easily transferable. They can all be offshore wind technicians and engineers. Um, They're already in the offshore environment. I mean, it's gonna be harder to train coal miners to be solar operators um, than it is for the offshore industry to just transition laterally from uh, oil to wind. And the great advantage among many is, you know, it's not a disaster when you have a wind spill.
2: A lot of these renewable energy sources are actually just better for the environment in general um, with how they're placed and how they're implemented as well. So and that's a good, really good point is it's there's not any drawbacks pretty much.
0: So we're kind of walking out here, which is great because we've just released this Ocean Climate Action Plan and people can find it online, go to the Center for a Blue Economy or a Blue Frontier. Um, and hopefully Airs for the Ocean will have the link as well to the final report. But, um, you know, we're all doing it because we love the ocean. So I I saw a great picture of your sister Dakota like bent over like a pretzel while snorkeling. Um, How'd you get into the ocean? We'll sort of do a quick round table on how we got to love our ocean.
2: Sure, okay. When I was very small, about five years old, I had this movie that went through the alphabet with ocean animals. And I fell in love with the parrotfish because I got to learn about the fact of its disgusting mucus bubble. Um, And five-year-old me thought that was hilarious. Um, And so I got really into coral reefs as well. And that's where my passion for coral started was the parrotfish. Um, And and just to
0: be clear, because I've seen it, puts basically a spit or mucus bubble around itself at night. Yep. So that if a predator approaches and pops it, it has that fraction of a second to escape.
2: Yeah. (laughs) It's quite disgusting and fascinating, in my opinion. Um, Yeah, so I was in coral reefs, and I was at the aquarium one day, and I was in front of a giant Pacific octopus tank. Oh. And there's always that one occasion that you'll see a giant Pacific octopus do kind of a dance. Um, and I started to experience this octopus dance, uh, throughout my lifetime when I was 11 at the San Diego aquarium, more recently when I was 13 in the Monterey Bay aquarium. And I was just fascinated by these animals. And so when I finally got to see a real life, uh, red octopus at the tide pools in pillar point i was just like blown away it was an incredible experience and that was the same year that we started earth for oceans
0: wow so and so you've gone beyond the tide pools now you're now a diver
2: yeah um we got dive certified and i was free diving one day and i got to see an octopus in a reef and it just rekindled that fire for me right in that moment okay
0: I'm gonna, before we go on, I'm gonna circle back to the parrotfish because aside from looking gorgeous and multi-hued rainbow fishes, um, it's not just their disgusting uh, spit bubbles, mucus bubbles that that get to me, but the fact that some of the most beautiful white sand beaches you find in the Caribbean are basically parrotfish poop. I yeah. mean, they 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 eat the algae on the coral, but they take in a lot of the coral so basically they, they eat coral and poot sand and a, Pretty much. <laughs> in the life of a parrotfish, if it gets to live a full productive 20 year life, it will uh, eat and poot about 50, 50 square yards of sand. So yeah. They, they're and the sand, actually, sand builders of the reefs.
2: That interesting fact is one of the reasons that they're keystone species is because they eat the algae off of coral and help coral reefs stays uh, sustained pretty much, because algae can overgrow coral when it's stressed and then there's no more reef, it's just algae at that point. And so having parrotfish around is a great way to make sure that coral reefs stay healthy, even if some of the coral turns into the beach.
0: <laughs> and Jason, what's what's your ocean origin story?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, first off though, you know, speaking of octo- octopi, I guess, um, is uh you know there's a great book i think it's the consciousness of an octopus or something like something like the mind the of a
2: soul of an octopus i read yeah. it it's great one of my it's favorites. a great book
1: and um i don't think people realize how conscious these creatures are they're incredibly incredibly smart and so it's it's a good book if you if you're one of those like most of us land lovers who kind of think of sentient beings as mostly terrestrial and think of you know, we think of sharks as kind of mindless killers and fish as kind of, they don't feel pain and all this stuff. None of that is true. And if you really wanna learn about a really highly sentient being, read about octo- Octopi. But on to my story. So mine is a little dark, but it has a good a good, good, ending, which is, so I'm gonna date myself here. I grew up with, uh, you know, record players and my parents had a record player and they had songs of the humpback whale. So I was probably your age, Charlie, you know, five, six or something, when you got inspired, and I would listen to this. You can imagine a five or six-year-old listening to these haunting sounds of a humpback whale singing, and I just remember being totally mesmerized by it. And then in the insert of albums, they used to have kind of magazines, you know, and, um, and they had a magazine of a humpback whale, and this one, unfortunately, was full of all the part pictures of them being harpooned and killed, and they had very, very gory pictures of humpback whales being slaughtered, and sea full of blood and so here I was listening to this music and you know kids love whales and then seeing that and I think if I was really to trace my uh my conservation ocean loving past is probably to that and the picture behind me on the screen here is me swimming with humpback whales in Tonga and so it finally came full circle and you know I'm trying to protect them now after uh, learning about them 40 plus years ago.
0: Okay, and I I always loved the beach, and you know, grew up on Long Island Sound. Harassed my mom to take us to Jones Beach, and when I was fifteen, she took my sister and me down to the Florida Keys, and it felt like looking at that turquoise water. It was like coming home to a place I'd never been before. And until then, I always thought I was like generations too soon to you know travel to alien worlds. Well, I got a mask and snorkel down there that week, and got off the seawall, and there was like, you know colorful living rocks and shoaling fish and my first little hammerhead shark and a sea turtle and I just realized there's this alien world uh just off our shore and I've just been you know spending my life trying to get to know a little of it and uh, you know people say you're optimistic or pessimistic with the state of the ocean what we're doing with this ocean climate action plan is trying to grow the solutions and save what we can at this point Uh, but I'm almost my I'm always most optimistic when I'm in the water, body surfing, diving, just that, that reconnection with the source. And vote. Everybody vote. For (laughs) sure. most important thing in the next six months is vote. Sea Party 2020. uh, All the changes that we're talking about require a change of regime, a change of politics.
2: To all the adults out there, your voices are super important right now. Um, and voting for the next generation is definitely the right choice and something that we need, especially right now.
0: And I'm going with Jason. You're the argument for the 16-year-old vote.
2: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And that's Rising Tide for today. If you'd like to learn more about the Ocean Climate Action Plan, read the full report, or get involved yourself, go to bluefront.org or to the Center for the Blue Economy at Middlebury. If you like our podcast, help promote it to your friends and through your media. And of course, we'll see you again on the next Tide, the Rising Tide.
2: Hi, my name's Elise Landon. I live on the beach in San Diego, and I'm the first listener to subscribe to Rising Tide. Special thanks to Blue Frontier, Studio K-May, an ocean conservation research for making Rising Tide possible.
1: Off in the salty ocean,
2: off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea, out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear, it's true,
1: it's the blue frontier, Tear. off to the blue frontier.